Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Thanks for coming. Um, the presentation that I'm about to give is an overview of the study that I've been working on. And it is in your handouts, so you might want to get those out. Um, there's a couple slides that will be missing because they contain uh, data that I don't want to have circulating quite yet because it's not published. So, But everything else... Um, is in there. And so I'll, I'll let you know, if you're like, where is that slide? It's, if it has a lot of numbers on it, I took it out. So first I want to say that um, this presentation is, a, is, I'm sort of a mouthpiece for a much larger group of people that I've been working on um, this project, and so I'm. I have a. I could probably put a lot more people on the slide as co-authors, but these are the main people that are working with me right now: Chris Kaplan, Evan Winget, Nathan Fisher, uh, and Jack Cornfield, who you may have heard of. He's a, a meditation teacher and the founder of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California. He's been a very strong supporter of this project and has helped out a lot. So. Um, a couple things that I want to mention um, during this talk. I'm going to give you an overview of sort of where else this talk has gone. Um, a literature review about difficulties that arise in meditation practice and sort of what's been published already. And then jump into the current research and talk about um, the difficulties that I have um, documented. And then um, go into... That I'm not. This is not the first time this has happened. There are other people who are also very concerned and and working concurrently or in the past on this topic. Um, and then I'll jump into some recommendations for clinicians, for researchers, for practitioners, and also for meditation teachers and retreat centers. Um, and so one of the things you're going to notice is that it says New Frontiers in Contemplative Science, June 2011. <laughs> So this is, Mind and Life is, loves to make their own templates for slides, and so it's a little Big Brother-ish, but they, a lot of my slides will have this on it, which basically just means that, I get, that that slide showed up um, in the presentation that I gave to the Mind and Life Institute in 2011. Um, 
later on, there was another presentation that I gave that I'll tell you about, which was the Mind and Life Dialogues, which is different than the Summer Institute, um, when I presented the same set of data in a much more truncated form to the His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And that presentation is actually on my website, so you can see what his responses and that kind of thing. Um, but it, this is a much longer, much more detailed version, and obviously you'll have time to ask questions. I also presented it to uh, a group of uh, Buddhist scholars at the Secular Buddhism Conference at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Um, and got some, so, I'm, so every time I give it, I get feedback, and so it gets better. I'll get feedback from you. Hopefully it'll get better. So that's the idea. So to jump into kind of the, the literature uh, review part, I just wanted to sort of point out that there was a very important issue in American Psychologist, which is the flagship journal of the American Psychological Association, um, looking at psychotherapy, um, and particularly Sona Demigian, who happens to be a very prominent mindfulness researcher, wrote this the key article called How Would We Know If Psychotherapy Were Harmful? And then David Barlow um, talked about... Um, this and had another article on that same thing and the training implications of um, harmful psychological treatments. So how, how should we... What are the harms and how should we train clinicians to address that? So, and one of the things that Sona Demigian says is that, you know, so much of psychotherapy research has been focusing on the benefits of psychotherapy and that nobody's really been asking, like, does it ever cause harm? And so I think probably the mo one of the most important um, times when this came up was in the critical stress debriefing. Do you remember that? Where it was sort of assumed that when somebody came out of a trauma like 9-11 that you put bring them in a room and like have them talk about it right away and make sure they can get... And then they found that that was actually not only not helping, but actually causing PTSD. So then it was like, oh, like, you know, this isn't... All psychotherapy and all of our, like, tremendous efforts actually might not always be a good idea. So, um, so, so in psychotherapy research, the sort of since 2010, it's really been sort of turning a corner and asking like more bigger questions. Like, okay, we have a lot of data that suggests that it's very beneficial for a lot of people, um, but maybe not everyone. So, and then a, a similar thing is happening in um, in meditation research. We have I told I showed you tons of data yesterday. Um, that we have lots of data on brain and psychological functioning, behavior, all kinds of things. We've documented many, many, many of the benefits for many, many people. Um, but there's been a very, um, a very biased reporting in, in not really asking a broader question, which is, are there any adverse effects? Are there any difficulties that arise? And then... So that's like very parallel to the psychotherapy question, but then in addition, what we've been bringing to you, you know, yesterday, which is this whole other, this whole other dimension of these practices, is you know, it, they're not actually psychotherapy. They're actually these practices are designed to do something entirely uh, different, and 
to what extent has that been documented, that this is actually happening to people who meditate? Um, and many of the things that we I'll be showing you are very, very well known in the, the Buddhist or, or uh, contemplative literature. So, so there's a whole other dimension. So first I just want to go over, um, just show you what's been written already um, on meditation-related difficulties. And, th- and this is in the mainstream medical journals. So scientific and medical journals, which unfortunately doesn't count the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology or anything in that dimension. So things that are written in a sort of spiritual dimension, I'm not going to count for now. And that's, this is important because this is one of the reasons why we don't know anything about this is because it's being published um, sort of under the framework of spiritual and in mainstream medicine, no one reads that stuff. It's not considered scientific. Um, so this is mainstream scientific literature. And again, this is in your handout, so you can you have all these references. But I just want to show you that this is the first slide, second slide. There's a lot of articles that have documented adverse effects of meditation. Um, more, almost 100 of them um, have been published. If you look carefully, it's in there. Some of them it's in the title. Some of it's more hidden. Um, and a couple things that I want to point out about this literature review is that we found articles in five languages, English, Spanish, Chinese, Thai, and German. Um, and we also found it spread across five continents, which is almost all of them. So the idea is, is that, that medita- meditation-related difficulties, they're not a specifically North American, Western thing. They're happening everywhere, that there are contemplative practices, um, and they're being documented. So it's not, this is a, a fairly widespread phenomenon. And it's ha- it ha- there is plenty of, this is not the first time this is, that this is being brought up. This has been brought up over and over and over again, just that we don't, we're not really paying that much attention. Another thing about this particular list is that these tend to be situations that are fairly serious. And these, were, these are retrospective case reports, for the most part where people on meditation retreats or who are otherwise meditating show up at an emergency room. And the emergency room doctors document the cases. Um, and so there's not, a lot of, there, there's not a lot of prospective research where somebody's actually going in and asking, the researcher is actually going in and asking, like, let's design a study to see if there are any adverse effects. Like, there's almost, almost no studies at all in this whole list of 100 with one exception. And I want to go through this one because the, me- the methodology of this study is very similar to some of the problems that other studies have, and, it'll con- and it can also kind of explain why we're not hearing about this in the clinical trial literature. So the study was done by Dean Shapiro. This is Shauna Shapiro's dad, by the way, um, who was a really big meditation uh, researcher and um, he did a study at the Insight Meditation Society, which is one of the biggest uh, meditation centers, most famous meditation centers in the U.S., um, on a three-month retreat. This is a Vipassana uh, Insight retreat. And so here, so what he did was, um, and this is kind of a list of some, some of the sort of issues with this, with this particular study. First of all, he asked people who are going, already going on this retreat, will you be in my study? So there are 100 people signed up for the retreat, and 25 of them said yes. Okay, 
So that's called selection bias, because the other 75%, we have no idea what's happening with them. Um, now, over the, cro- over the course of the three-month retreat, half of the people dropped out of the study. So now we only have 12 left, okay? Because there's 25 signed up, and half of them dropped out. We have 12 or 13 left. So we have no idea what happened to the other 12 people that dropped out of the study. If something bad happened to them, and, and, and obviously when people drop out of studies, those are usually the people that have bad things happen to them. So, uh, like, same thing with psychotherapy research or, or drug trial research. Like, things aren't going well, which is why they drop out. So it's hard to document what's going on if you don't have the data. Um, but some of the good things about this study, which made it very interesting, is that they, one, they asked specific questions about negative experiences. They had a specific probe for that. I would say 99.9% of the studies, um, meditation studies that are going right now, they don't actually ask people, did you have any negative experiences? Um, they just, they just, if somebody totally freaks out, they have to report it to the IRB, and then, then it becomes documented as an adverse effect. But otherwise, they don't ask the question. But they're asking, you know, a thousand questions on, you know, did your anxiety get better? Do you feel, like, less tortured by your thoughts? Do you have, you know, there's a million positive questions. So, of course, they find something. But the negative questions just don't exist. And when they do, they ask questions about, they use basically drug um, pharmacology study questionnaires. So, like, did you have nausea? Did you have a stomach ache? You know, things that, like, drugs do to you. And, of course, that's not... As you'll see, that's not really the kind of side effects that we're going to see. Um, so the second great thing that they did in the study was that they had free-form responses. So it wasn't just specific questions, but it was kind of like they could write paragraphs and narratives. And this is where something very interesting came out, was that they asked one of the 12 people that was in this, who stayed in the study, they asked, um, you know, did anything negative happen to you? And the person wrote oh, no, nothing happened to me, not like my roommate who had a psychotic break and ended up, like, uh, attempting suicide and getting carted away in an ambulance. You know, that per- so, he, so he wrote about his roommate who wasn't in the study. And so the only reason that we even know about this person who was on this retreat is because some guy in the study wrote about his roommate. And so that made me think, whoa, what else is going on that we don't, like, that isn't being documented that we don't know about? Obviously, the, 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 all that huge list of, of um, studies, that's not where to look. The, the, the information is not in there. But you can bet the people at IMS know what happened because they're, they're, they were there. They were running it. So I, that's what I basically said. The literature is not going to really give us much information about this. It's only the worst-case scenarios, and everything that didn't make it to the emergency room is basically unknown, undocumented. So I'm going to go to these retreat centers. I'm going to make an appointment with the head person that's been there for 30 years, and I'm going to sit them down and say, tell me what you've seen. And if they can give me, uh, if I can get in touch with any of those people, like that person that went to the emergency room, um, I'd like to hear it from, from them, too. So that's what the study's about. So it's a, it's a study on meditation-related difficulties in American meditators. And I say American because we're going to probably um, look at other, other cultures uh, later. But for right now, this is just Americans. And there were three sets of um, interviews, and this is actually turning into a fourth 
but we actually asked um, meditation teachers. Um, again, we asked them in your personal practice experience and also as a teacher, what kind of difficulties have you seen? We also asked them um, if you could get in touch with any of those people that they, everybody had like a bunch of sort of worst case scenarios from their particular center. Um, or they had their own stories to tell. So if they had their own stories to tell, they became a number in the study, a uh, de-identified number. Um, and so I would say probably more than half of the people in the study are the teachers themselves. Um, and then, or they gave us, they, they sort of sent out an email and said, hey, there's these people doing, asking questions. Would anyone be interested in talking to them? Um, so that's how we got in touch with a number of the other people. So those are the practitioners. We also talked to Buddhist scholars about here's what we're here's what we're hearing is anything that that um, we're documenting. Have you ever seen this in any of those in the texts that you study? Is this like ever been reported in, in you know ancient Buddhism before? Um, and now there's a there's a fourth category that we've started interviewing, which are clinicians that tend to work with that are long term practitioners that tend to work with um, meditators. And so people like Roger Walsh would be someone like that. Um, uh, Jack Engler. I, didn't, I haven't actually talked to Jack yet, but some people like that. Um, and Ron Siegel, who is the director of, or he's on the board of directors for the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. So people like that. Um, so that, those are the kind of the, the people that we're talking to. And then there are three questions. Phenomenology, which is, what has your experience been with meditation? What kinds of difficulties have you had? Interpretation, like why is this happening? What, what, are, what are maybe like risk factors or causes that, that um, have this happen? And then what do you do about it? What are the remedies? What, what should we be thinking of practically? So this study was very much, uh, a very, had a very practical motivation behind it, which was, we know there, I know there are difficulties because I've had them myself, and what can we, um, how can we better improve the support structure? How can we really educate people to have a better support structure? So this wasn't just an intellectual academic investigation, it really had um, the point behind it of creating better support. So here's a list of some of the meditation teachers and scholars. Again, I think you have this list. Um, and there are other people on the list that you've probably never heard of. So I, these are probably ones that are a little bit more, um, probably heard of some of these people. Um, again, a lot of them came from the Insight Meditation Society and Spirit Rock because Jack Cornfield was very involved in helping out with us. So he, he got us in touch with a lot of other teachers. Um, and like I said, I, Ron Siegel should be added to this too and some, some other therapists. So these are the people that, it's a little bit complicated because some of the teachers aren't de-identified. Um, so a lot of the teachers, we had to do two interviews, kind of like interviewing as a teacher, and then we can say like, Jack Cornfield said, or whoever. Um, and then some of the, some of the teachers uh, are the actual 30 practitioners that report difficulties, and then they become numbers. Um, and sometimes they're like, oh, I don't care. I don't, I don't care if people know. I talk about this in my books and whatever. So, so to give you a sense, so, so now we're moving into the practitioners. These are the meditators who we interviewed about difficulties. 
Um, there are about we have we've coded about thirty interviews. Um, it's a pretty even match in terms of gender, and it's a pretty big range in terms of age, twenty-one to seventy-four. They tend to be they tend to match the demographic of most meditators, which is uh, fairly educated. Uh, a lot of people had some graduate degrees, and again, this sample came largely from the IMS Spirit Rock teacher group, but we also have representation from Goenka, Zen, and Vajrayana, which is Tibetan Buddhist. Do we need more batteries? It sounded to me the whole time like it wasn't on, so I was like yelling. Hey. Is this on? Oh, okay. Uh, so I was saying that the representation across the schools of Buddhism is primarily Theravada, Western Vipassana, which is, I think, appropriate for this stage. I mean, we're doing... No? Is it on now? No. Is it on now? How's that? Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Okay. One more time. Uh, I apologize if this is over and over again. So it's important to, to describe the sample. So... About 80% came from what we would call Western Vipassana or Western Insight, which is the IMS and Spirit Rock teachers. But we also have representation from other main schools of Buddhism, um, Goenka, Zen, and Vajrayana. Um, Again, about 70% of the sample that I'll show you are uh, meditation teachers. And the age of onset before they started reporting difficulties was about age 30, and again, a huge range from 20 to 49. And the number of years of meditation practice before they started having these symptoms that I'm going to describe was almost seven years. So this is not rookies, Um, although I have to say some of them, the the range could start very, very soon. not still on. Okay. <laughs> the range could the range could be very early. So it says zero to twenty five, but it's like a couple days into practice, um, all the way to no one people had no problems at all until they hit twenty five years. So again, there's a huge huge range that we're trying to trying to figure out. So in terms of the phenomenology, again, there were three questions: What have you experienced? How do you interpret it? And what did you do about it? Um, So far, we've analyzed about 600 pages of text, about 7,000 units of analysis. And so far, and this is preliminary, it's not done yet, but we've come up with about 41 categories of experience that are clustered into six clusters. And I I made an updated version of of the clusters, and 
a one-page handout for you for this. And the clusters are cognitive, perceptual, sense of self, affective or emotional, somatic or physio- uh, physiological, and social. So I'm going to go through each one of these clusters in uh, detail. So the first cluster is cognitive. So one of the first things um, people report is an increase in their perceptual sampling rate. So they're really just, for each unit of time, which you could say like a second or a minute, more information about the outside world or the inside world is coming in. They're noticing more things. Um, And many of them also called it uh, stimulus overload. Like there's just so much, they're they're noticing so many things that it's like hard to parse out. Um, Another description that goes along with this is that it's similar to when when you really have Uh, focused your microscope. So through attention training, you focus your microscope and you start to look into the nature of things and you look down into uh, an object and you start to see that it's made of cells or particles. That would would be analogous. People start to see objects as non-solid, that they're made of particles or they start to pixelate um, or flash in and out. So they're actually starting to see the um, the way that the world is constructed through per- through perceptions, and so like when we talked about um, the the insight into anatta, the, the the selflessness of objects, that objects are actually being uh, sort of co-produced by our our perceptual mechanisms, and they're not totally uh, reliable. So like perception has to happen in bits, um, and so you can actually see the gaps in between your perceptions or where um, you start to fill in stuff where they're, you're, really, you're really not seeing things. You, you're really starting to see into the process of perception itself. Um, they also report a decrease in sensory thresholds. So that means that you need less input in order to detect things. So they're becoming extremely sensitive um, and we have some fancy words for those kinds of, for increased sensory uh, sensitivity in different domains. So hyperacusis is uh, hearing sounds more loudly. And to give you, an, give you an example of the extent of hyperacusis is that people report not only that like louds are so, uh, sorry, sounds are so loud, but that like a truck driving by on the, or a car driving by on the street outside your bedroom feels like a truck driving through your body. People describe that, that it's just like, you know, and if you've ever had um, hyperacusis, it's like, oh, it's like really, really disturbingly loud. Um, Same thing with hyperchromia is actually kind of a nicer one where colors get brighter um, and everything just seems like really just kind of amazing. But it can also just be like, all right, let's turn this off and then you can't. Um, Photosensitivity is is sensitivity to light, um, which is just light, like lights like this, people, they just can't tolerate them. Uh, hallucinations in every modality. So this means uh, visual hallucinations, auditory, 
proprioceptive, tactile, gustatory, um, across the board, all kinds of uh, hallucinations. Um, just to be precise, hallucinations are defined as a percept in the absence of, of sensory input. Um, one of the most common um, hallucinations is the appearance of visual lights. So these can be lights that are look like little stars, like we call them Christmas lights. Actually, those little dots on the uh, on the stairs are pretty awesome, like descriptions of what people are seeing. Those those white lights, um, and also a, a lightening of the visual field. And I actually have a paper that's. Hopefully, we're waiting for one reviewer to stop complaining, um, but hopefully we'll be impressed very soon about the experience of lights with lots of descriptions from meditators and also the neurobiological mechanisms that we're guessing and then also a list of uh, texts, Buddhist texts that describe the appearance of lights. So we're really excited about um, that and I will let you know when it comes out. We also see distortions in time and space, and I think I was describing temporal disintegration yesterday, where time basically is also seen as a construct, also experienced as a construct. And um, I was telling Michael the story last night when I was little. I would just like really freak myself out as a kid because I'd be like, "Right now is yesterday's tomorrow," and like right now is tomorrow's yesterday. And I would just be like, whoa, that's so crazy. Like, we can't actually be in the past or future. We can only be in the present. And so that's like, oh, little kids are so cute. They do funny things like that. But, like, it's actually a very profound insight that, like, there is, if you actually look at your, we, we, we treat the past and future like they're real things, but, like, they're actually only ideas. And we only live in the present moment. And when you start to really check that out, it's like, wow, it's, it's pretty profound. And so... This, is, this becomes extremely obvious when you practice a lot and people just start to not experience time in the same way. It's just an ever-present now. And the, um, you can almost imagine, like, if you imagine the, our experience as being kind of like a bell curve and that, like, the, the middle of it is the present moment and then there's, like, a little tail in the past and a little tail in the future. And that's kind of how we experience ourselves, right? We came in today and now we're here, and then we're going to leave, and like we have a little tail in the future. Well, this is more like taking the present moment and pulling it up, and so that there's no tail on either end. It's just the present moment. Um, and it's, it's very hard to... It can be some impairment in functioning related to that because you're not really sure like where you came from or where you're going, or like, what am I doing here? Um, what, what was I just talking about? So it can be a little bit, a little bit much. So not surprisingly... All of these things can lead to some kind of disorientation and confusion. Um, one of the things that is a term that is probably, you've probably heard of. How many have you heard of the term cognitive diffusion? Okay, so it's a term that's used a lot in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, um, which is the idea that, it, it, and in sort of in its more milder form, it's the idea that thoughts are mental events, they're transient mental events, that pass through our minds, and they're not necessarily accurate perceptions of reality. Quite freeing. Um, but cognitive diffusion can continue into a much more, a much deeper appreciation of that, where the 
the, the raw percept, so the, uh, an, you see an object, and the meaning behind it, which is the, the thought about it, the, the, the description, um, start to decouple. And so the idea of having sort of a direct sensory perception of things, everyone, I think we assume that that's always going to be a good thing. Just like I, I'm, I'm seeing things directly with no commentary, with no judgment, just raw inform, sensory information, and, and that's what will save me. So I'll give you an example of when this is maybe not the best, when, when you want to have that coupling sometimes. So this is a, a woman who was on a three-month Shamatha retreat, and she drove up to a red light, and she saw the red light, but the meaning of the red light was not there. And she said that she would have just kept driving through the red light if the car in, there was a car in front of her that stopped. So in that case, the, this cognitive diffusion, which we're all celebrating as being the mechanism of mindfulness and this very, very helpful thing, in some cases, you want to have that coupling. And, it, and that could have been a fatal uh, decoupling. Um, and, then in, along, and then in similarly along those same lines, uh, uh, other symptoms in the cognitive domain are delusions and irrational beliefs. And some of those can actually blend into much more psychotic uh, uh, dimensions, uh, levels, um, if, it, if it happens without insight. Sometimes there's insight, sometimes not. Um, impaired executive functioning, um, problems with concentration, decision-making, and memory. Uh, emotional or affective changes. And this can basically run the gamut of uh, overactive emotions and underactive. So on the overactive side, we, we tend to see, or see increases in fear, everything on the fear spectrum. Intense fear, anxiety, panic, paranoia, rage, anger, aggression. Classic manic features, um, grandiosity, flight of ideas, euphoria, but also agitated mania, restlessness, distractibility, irritability, and then again, on the other side, emotional flattening, alexithymia, not really being able to describe your emotions, depression, anhedonia, loss of meaning, suicidality. Um, and then probably one of the most important um, symptom categories that I put in the affective domain because it tends to be very affective, but it, it could almost be its own category, is the derepression of psychological material. So this is just... Um, defenses kind of melt and lots of immaterial, sometimes traumatic, sometimes not, um, but usually highly affectively charged, comes to the surface. Um, and while we think of this as being a very therapeutic um, dimension, it's, it doesn't really have an off switch. So it's not like it happens while we're on the cushion and then we're like, oh, I just relived and processed all of this information and now the bell's rung and I'm going to go to work now. It's, it would be great if it worked that way, but unfortunately it's like something gets torn open and then it's really just meditators have to work with that, that kind of opened wound um, until it's processed and it, it basically takes over their life until they're done processing. So that's where it starts to impair functioning because it, it's not really, it's not limited to being on the cushion. Okay. The next one is loss of sense of self. We spent a lot of time on this yesterday. I have even more to talk about that today, but you get a sense of maybe where this is coming from. 
So a loss of narrative identity, not really understanding. Uh, so one, one example of this is like seeing your name on a check, seeing your name anywhere, and just like not having any kind of connection with the name. Or somebody saying your name and you're like, I know her. You know, and then you're like, that's you. Oh, so like like the person in the story yesterday, Emily, she was like, didn't recognize her own name or the sense that she was that, that person. Um, also the sense of agency, like that there's somebody doing this, um, sense of control or ownership over body, thoughts, that kind of thing. Feeling of continuity over time. Um, and like I said, temporal disintegration where people feel like the... The, the relationship of self to time is very, very linked. So when time disappears and you're only here now, your sense of narrative self disappears because it's dependent on having a sense of time. And if you don't have that, then you're just kind of here. Um, body awareness and self, other boundaries. I also described that a little bit yesterday. And the disintegration of conceptual meaning structures. When your sense of, when everything isn't referred back to you, it actually shifts your, your, uh, your interaction with the world because it's not like my chair, my computer, uh, my life anymore. It's just, it has a different kind of non-self, a very impersonal quality to it, which can be a little bit uh, surprising. Okay, the somatic descriptions are, um, these are physiological descriptions. And these are very interesting because I think that we don't have a lot of these are the, sort of the most surprising for um, sci scientists. We really, um, scientists don't really have um, a worldview that can sort of explain a lot of these things. So we see a lot of uh, physiological symptoms that I threw into the category of autonomic dysregulation. So we tend to see um, a lot of extreme agitation, um, tachycardia, which is a rapid heartbeat. Um, we, like I said before, a lot of a lot of this stuff has been documented in sort of spiritual um, type, like transpersonal psychology, and like there's a book called Spiritual Emergency. Um, there's a lot of discussion of these types of effects, like in terms of Kundalini awakening and chakras and things like that. And again, it's already been documented, but none of the scientists read it because it's it's really considered sort of outside the domain of science. So in our study, we wanted my purpose was to, to actually have data that could be palatable to the scientific community. And so we basically would not let any of our subjects use any kind of lingo like that. So if somebody said, I had a kundalini awakening, I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? And if they said, oh, I have energy running through my body, I'm like, okay, so we banned certain words. So energy was one of the words that we banned because I'm like, okay, we, scientists don't like that. We can't use that word. So what was very interesting is that every time we asked, lots of people use the word energy, but when we, asked, when we said, can you say something else, they would think and they'd say, I had a, they would change the word energy into metaphors about electricity. So they would use electricity, they would use 10,000 volts. So we had one guy who said, I felt like I was a toaster who had 10,000 volts running through me in the wrong direction. So that gives you kind of a, a description. Uh, we see lots of uh, changes in sleep, particularly insomnia or just not needing to sleep. Like um, people just go for days without sleeping. Decreased appetite, nausea, uh, weight loss, gastrointestinal disturbances, 
Uh, thermal shifts, so changes in temperature, sweating, overheating, hot flashes, shivering, goosebumps. Respiratory irregularities, particularly uh, panting and uh, respiratory quiescence, which is people will be following their breath and they'll be waiting for the in-breath and waiting and waiting and waiting. And they're like, oh my God, like it goes on for a really long time and they're not breathing in. Um, and and again, this is this is actually fairly normal, but it's if you don't know about it, it's like, why am I not breathing? And then they'll force the, the in-breath, which is actually not that helpful. And I'm sure Michael has a lot to say about that. Um, and a lot, the, a lot of this sort of extreme agitation is, um, it's very tiring to be extremely agitated all the time. And so you also see periods of extreme fatigue and lethargy. People are like literally not able to get out of bed. Um, we also see pain. And again, I, I, it's funny because I, I never put the word energy on the slides, but then I just tell you that that's what they're talking about. Um, so pain and sensations... I think um, vibration, pressure, and tingling were all the, were other words that people tried to use instead of saying the word energy. But that's what they were that's what they were saying. Um, lots of knots in the body. Um, sometimes knots that, when you focus on them, open up into uh, a memory, especially a difficult emotional memory. So a lot of pain in the body, head pressure, head, headaches, um, and then the last symptom is actually something that. I find one of the most interesting because it's one of the only ones that's directly observable. It's not just people telling you stories. Like it's actually, you can see it. And this one is involuntary movements. They look a lot like seizures, um, where somebody might just be sitting in practice or even outside of practice, and they'll go like, like that. Um, and so like kind of convulsions. You can also see like shaking, like people start to shake, or their arms will start flapping or just stereotypical movements um, that are very similar to uh, seizures. Um, a lot of people describe the experience of these as being um, totally involuntary, like they can't stop it once it's happening, um, and also sometimes the feeling of, like, and uh, happening at the same time as this, like, as this electric electrical thing happening, so, like, feeling like a lightning, being struck by lightning, where people will have this thing, and they'll be like, I feel like I just got struck by lightning. So, um, interesting. So, other difficulties, not surprisingly, worldview confusion, <laughs> um, in that they sat, you know, people were meditating to calm themselves down, to have better lives. Maybe some distant idea of enlightenment, which was this supposed to be this very calm, pleasant thing, not involving, you know, energetic explosions or uh, extreme terror or anything like that, and they just don't know what's happening. So a lot of just, like, what's going on. Um, and many people that I see just feel like, because of what they've been, of their expectations about meditation, that they've done something terribly wrong and that they feel just, like, deeply ashamed. And so a lot of them... Um, just kind of drop out of their sangha and they stop meditating um, and they really just feel like they've kind of been thrown out, cast out of the, um, their group. And it's for, if you're, if you're a long-term meditator and you have a kind of sangha, I mean, that can really be like your family. So it's, it's very, very traumatic. This, this sort of, these are kind of secondary 
problems, these are the ones I think are really can be addressed much better than they are. Um, just, just they're totally devastated, and they just that. So I think that the section on interpretation, like they really interpret that they are failing at meditation, that they're the only ones that um, this is happening to, and that's you know they've somehow just they're broken. They're they're just it's true. They're 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 they're, they're Deepest fear that there's something uniquely deficient about them is actually true, and that they tried to meditate and they lost their minds and they're just so ashamed. So uh, they tend to withdraw from their friends, their Dharma friends, their teachers, and some of them actually try to talk to their friends and teachers and then actually get rejected by them because other people are very defensive of the practices and the Dharma, and they're like, well, there must be something wrong with you because... This is all always good. It's always a good thing. Um, so that, it's very, very difficult to see. People that come to me are usually in extreme distress. Okay, the next slide is very disturbing. Um, the duration of these uh, symptoms, including impairment, and we define difficulty and impairment as lasting more than a month, um, and resulting in impairment in social or, func- or occupational functioning. So inability to work and difficulties with, in relationships or taking care of children. Um, so the average duration of impairment was 3.2 years. Um, and the range was 4 months to 12 years. And you can see that this is sort of um, the breakdown of the group that we have right now. So... One thing you should understand is that this study deliberately did it, uh, was seeking out the worst case scenarios. So I don't think it's going to get worse than this. This is as bad as it gets. And I think that if we kept sampling, kept sampling, kept sampling, that the, this, this number would be very high and it would be tapering off. But there are people in our sample that have been struggling for more than, more than a decade and sometimes more than two decades. Um, and there's actually a very well-known book by a guy named Gopi Krishna, who was an Indian um, businessman or government official, I think. And he had what he describes as a kundalini awakening, but you'll, re- you'll recognize a lot of the symptoms as being the same. And it's, it's a very, like, grounded, sane book. And he just, so after 12 years of having all this, like, energy moving through his body and all these, like, perceptual aberrations... He's like, okay, it's been 12 years. I mean, how much longer could this last? So he wrote, he's like, time to write my book. He wrote a book called Living with Kundalini. And then like 10 years later, it was still happening. And so he wrote another book, like still living with Kundalini. Um, So if you want to read that, there's one like that. There's another one called um, Collision with the Infinite, which is a woman who loses her sense of self pretty much indefinitely, but she, after she's, struggling without any kind of sense of what's going on for, I think, 12 years. Um, So that's another one that I can give you. So one of the biggest questions on our minds was, well, besides, like, what the hell? What the hell's going on here? Um, Is the question of, is this progress or is this pathology? So one of the things we did was we took our code book and the symptoms that you guys have and we sent them back to both teachers and Buddhist scholars and we asked them, like, what are you seeing here? We got, you know, these straight up descriptions, again, totally de-lingoed, no kundalini, just very, very dry descriptions. Um, 
have you ever seen this before in any of the texts, in the Buddhist texts that you study? So coming from the Tibetan text, um, and this is actually published by Mark Epstein, um, but also other, other um, Tibetan scholars like John Donne and Tupton Jimpa, there is a, a phenomenon called suklong, um, which is a, in Tibetan, the Tibetan system, they have a lot of, actually in Tibetan Buddhism, there is a lot of subtle energy, whereas in other forms of Buddhism, they don't actually talk about energy. Um, but in this form, there's something called suklung, which is a stagnation of the life-bearing wind, it's an energy, around the heart. And it can, it can cause symptoms um, of anxiety, agitation, panic, mania, and in severe cases, psychosis. And th- in the Tibetan taxonomy, it's considered a side effect of improper effort, so straining. Um, and so having a very like tight, goal-oriented practice um, can cause that. Um, this was the, actually the only one that we got that was pathology. All the other ones, all the other uh, scholars that wrote back to us said, oh yeah, like we know what this is. This is actually part of the path. And so I learned about a text. Um, I talked about it yesterday. The Visuddhimagga is a 5th century text that was written by a guy named Buddhaghosa. It's one of the fundamental texts in Theravada Buddhism. And it's also called the, the, translated as the Path of Purification. And it's 16 stages of uh, progress through the... Can you just connect Visuddhimagga and how it relates to just mindfulness? You want to say something? No, but can you, can you say something? Just so they know that Visuddhimagga is also like a commentarial text of the people who brought mindfulness. Okay. You know, you say authorized it. it, you say it. I, I just want to point this out because I, I think yesterday we talked about the three characteristics um, and how many people put up their hands and say, oh, I've done mindfulness training, I teach mindfulness, but I don't know the three characteristics. So this 5th century text is a really, really important text because it's the first one we mentioned aside from the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, this comes later, that actually offers a map for stages of meditative practice that's using exactly the same framework as uh, the mindfulness practices we talked about yesterday. So uh, this is just a, an important one to check off as something to investigate for those of you who are uh, teaching meditative practices. It's a really, really fascinating text that goes through the map of practice in a lot of detail. Thank you for allowing the footnotes. Yeah, no, I'm, you, I welcome lots of footnotes. That's how we make this presentation better. Um, so yeah, so so there is, there are many maps. This is one of the problems, but this is one of the maps um, that comes from the early Buddhist maps and. This was so that the original one called the Stages of Insight was written by Buddhaghosa, um, but there was another version of it called the Progress of Insight, which is almost identical, but it has some slight variations. That was written by a guy named Mahasi Saida. How many of you have heard of Mahasi? Okay, so Mahasi is very important because Maha- Mahasi Saida was basically the patriarch of American insight practice. So if there's one particular lineage that influenced like 
Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein, like all of those people, John Kabat-Zinn, that far, like the, the Mahasi lineage is actually the one to watch. And so, and he follows the, this, this, these stages, the progress of insight. So that, that's another play. You can, this is on my website if you want to download Mahasi's progress of insight. It's a little easier to read than this one um, because he kind of knew how to talk about it with uh, Western audiences. So anyway, there's 16 stages, and there's a couple in the middle. <laughs> I can go through all of them, but there's a couple in the middle that are known to be difficult, um, and they're called the dukkha jnanas. Remember we talked about dukkha? Jnana means knowledge, so the knowledges of dukkha, knowledges of suffering. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to go through the section. I think these are the ones that are uh, the most important stages to understand. And um, these are the ones that the Buddhist scholars sent back to us and said, check these out. So there's one called arising and passing away. And this is when you start to notice the truth of impermanence. So when you start to notice that things aren't solid and everything's coming and going, coming and going, and you're like, wow, like nothing's really solid. A lot of the things that Michael was saying that I thought were totally crazy are actually true. Wow, this is so cool. Oh, my God. And people get really excited. And this is where the sort of manic euphoria comes in. So the arising and passing stage tends to be really, a really like, wow, I'm really getting something. This is like, there's truth to this. There's a lot of faith and excitement. And if you have manic tendencies, this is probably where you get launched into a manic episode. Um, well, arising and passing, and a lot of people also think they're enlightened at this point because they're, they're like, they start to see like sort of the truth of reality and they get really excited, they shave their head, they leave their partners, they go join monasteries. Um, but the, the next, the, but the rising and passing is proceed, is right before, um, see how it's a different color than the Dukanyanas? It's sort of like uh, a signpost that like something pretty dark is coming. So it's actually a really good thing to notice when somebody's really excited. You're like, come back and see me tomorrow. Um, so things are passing really fast, and you're noticing all that, and it's really cool. And then you start to notice like, so imagine like cars driving by on a on a freeway, and you're like, wow, everything's driving by. Cool. This is like nothing solid. This is really awesome. Everything's flowing, and then. You're, it's like your mind starts to look towards the passing part. And you're like, oh, wow, everything's disappearing. Not like everything's coming, but everything's disappearing. And so there's a natural sort of movement of the mind to notice dissolution, that everything's actually dissolving, and you start to really get a sense of, like, death. Um, and there's also, at some point, you start to realize not only... Is everything out there not solid and, and unreliable and flowing and um, dying? But the practitioner starts to realize that I am too. And then a very, very natural response, which is not wrong or a problem, it's right on there as a stage, is to react with terror. It's very normal to react with terror when you start to realize that. Um, and this is where I think having some training around holding that space for the person uh, is going to be incredibly important. Um, then there's other stages, um, and the, there's different translations. So one of them is misery, but it's also danger. Um, there's also a, a stage called dispassion or disgust or disenchantment. 
Um, and then desire for deliverance, um, which is basically just like, oh my God, help me. And the next one, um, reflection and reobservation is kind of like a mixture of everything together, which is usually actually the hardest one. But it, these are the ones that separate them out. Um, so ju- just looking at the descriptions, just the titles of these stages, you can get a sense that they're not intended to be fun. And I think that you know many of us have a very, I think many of us, and not because we're stupid, but because the way that meditation is marketed and sold, that we come in with a very naive, overly optimistic view that we're going to be, you know, we ourselves as miserable people or our clients are going to come into our clinic in extreme misery and then graduate through practice into regular misery and then be mostly okay, totally okay, pretty happy. And that eventually, like, just in a linear way, like, the more we meditate, we're going to feel better. And the only reason we don't feel better is because we didn't meditate enough. And so I think that this is maybe not implicit, but like, I mean, sorry, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, like, this is the way people address it. And so when there's anything else that goes on, we feel like we're miserable failures. And so it's like most of my work is to actually educate people that like, you know what, this linear progress, this linear idea is a total fantasy and it probably looks more like this. So this is the, the, um, the same stages of insight, but just graphed in a way where up is positive experiences and down is negative experiences. And that if you think of the horizontal axis as actually progress, that the more, the higher euphoric cosmic unity kind of experiences are actually earlier on in the progress. And when you start to actually that, that, that to actually have uh, fear and sort of a level of disenchantment, this looks a lot like depression, by the way, um, where people start to realize that uh, the self-esteem, self-improvement, uh, hedonic treadmill is not actually paying off, um, and people start to actually stop investing in short-term types of uh, payoffs. Um, that that, at least from a Buddhist perspective, is, is actually a positive thing. Um, and, and when these people show up in clinicians' offices that are not familiar with this framework, it looks a lot like depression, and, people, and, and there's almost a counterproductive um, treatment of trying to bring people back into feeling good about themselves and to bolstering their sense of self, and that might not be the best thing. Um, I'll also say that I think this... Um, like I said, if you, if you tend to have manic tendencies, you might be, you might start to have this particular process. I think if you think about it as like a, almost as a biological rhythm, like a like a menstrual cycle. Like if, if somebody has sort of like um, dysphoric uh, tendencies that are especially hormonal, then that like when they get to a certain phase in the menstrual cycle, they become depressed, right? So there's an interaction between their psychology and their biology. Well, this is kind of similar in that, like, this is maybe a natural progression of kind of development, but that at certain stages it may interact with um, certain proclivities or tendencies. So if you tend to have many tendencies arising and passing, maybe a fairly uh, dicey stage to go through, and you want to be maybe a little bit more monitored, make sure that you're sleeping. 
Um, we tend to have, and by the way, this is all my speculation, but this is about as good as we have right now. Um, or not just mine, but other people's too. Um, if you have a trauma history, um, this, this sense that things are dissolving, um, especially the sense of self. Somebody asked yesterday about um, the dissolution of the self versus the dissociation and trauma. Um, and this is a place where that can get very messy and that people can start to become afraid and the, the fear of the fear that comes with the insight, which could be fairly short-lived if it's, if it's adequately addressed by an experienced teacher who's been through it, um, that terror can kind of resonate with the, the terror that can be inside you from a trauma. And then there's, then there's a very, it's very confusing because the terror, which is usually non-referential, has a sort of just non-referential terror around insight, can now have a, a, a content to it. And then you have to work through that content before you can really go back to it. And dissociation just is basically the body saying, I can't deal. I'm not ready for this. So you got to really monitor people closely on, on this stage to make sure that um, they don't get stuck there. People can get stuck. That's why we're seeing three years is because uh, these things are overlapping with um, what's already going on. And down here, I would say that people with this sort of depressive tendencies can be can spend a lot of time in this stage um, unnecessarily because it's um, again the learning that learning to disengage from um, certain kinds of uh, happiness projects um, is actually a positive thing. But having the the sort of feeling of depression resonate with other depressive tendencies, especially ones that are self-referential. Um, can, can keep you in this longer. Um, eventually, equanimity is a, a stage of being sort of okay, um, and that is actually kind of a natural progression if you stick with it eventually. Um, and then one of the more disturbing things that I learned, I, I went through these stages and it took me a while and uh, one of the more disturbing things that I learned was that you don't actually go through these stages once. You go through them over and over again. So the inside stages might look a lot like this, where they might be kind of, you're, you're sort of excavating your psyche, like pretty deeply here, and then this is arising and passing, and you do it again and again, and it gets a little easier each time, um, especially if you know what you're doing. And then there might also be cycles within cycles, so it might actually look like this. Um, and, and really advanced meditators who, have, are extremely, who, who are very familiar with these cycles and know what they look like in their own body and mind actually say that an entire cycle can happen. Um, I've heard within one sitting, like they sit down for an hour and they, they go through the entire cycle. And I've even heard people say within one breath, but I'm like, I'm nowhere near that, so I don't. I'm like lucky if I even see a breath. But um, anyway, that's this is a possibility. I don't know. Um, so I'm. So we're still on the topic of is this progress or pathology? So this is a quote from Jack Cornfield. He says, due to ignorance regarding the frequency and variety of unusual experiences in meditative practice. Western psychology has often erroneously given pathological interpretations to what are, in fact, common and normal meditation experiences. 
Um, and then he goes on to say something really important for researchers. Um, and again, I think there was a important there was an important quote, and I wish I could remember it exactly, but it's something like um, basically that when you when you work in research, when you look at research articles and their conclusions, we work in averages. And the averages always have a standard deviation next to them, which is the variability around the average. And so on average, yes, there's benefit, but it's, there's obviously a range. Um, and that's not going to take into account, especially uh, research on much later meditators, about where they are in those cycles. And so he says... It is essential to recognize the non-linear process of growth in meditation in order to construct proper research models. Unfortunately, much previous research has viewed meditation as if it would produce simple, simple growth curves based on measuring one or more psychophysiological variables over time. Upon recognizing the meditative pattern of periodic regression, restructuring, and reintegration, it becomes clear that to take an average measure of a population of meditators over time will not account for those sample members who are experiencing the extremes of regression or of advanced concentration and would result in a meaningless average. Care must be taken in research design to acknowledge the complexity of this growth process and to design sufficiently sensitive or long-term studies to measure changes while allowing for this nonlinear development to take place. Uh, I think researchers have a, actually a more of a problem with this than clinicians because you know that if we like, came in and sampled any of your patients at any given time that sometimes they're, like, really in, they're really in the trenches of their, their process. And if you measured like, their level of functioning or their level of distress, it would be very high, but like, you kind of know that that's a good thing. So this is really kind of the same idea. Um, but Jack Cornfield... Yes, he has a PhD as a clinician, but he's very, very, uh, he's very linked with the transpersonal movement. So he, he, you know, and I have to say, you know, he lives in San Francisco, and he's pretty liberal-minded. So he says this is not a problem. He says this is your normal meditation experiences, but, you know, what would the American Psychological Association say? Remember how we looked at the, the, the criteria of depersonalization disorder yesterday? We're all kind of looking like this looks kind of similar to what we were what we were describing. Well, there's a very interesting little subtext inside the DSM, which I couldn't believe when I found it, um, which was voluntarily induced experiences of depersonalization or derealization form a part of meditative practices and should not be confused with depersonalization disorder. This is, this is the 4TR, so not 5, although I have a lot to say about 5. <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, and so this basically means that if somebody comes to you with the symptoms that I was describing yesterday, and it, it's within a, a responsive meditation, um, it's, it's actually kind of up to you to be able to, you can call it a V code or you can call it a disorder, depending on probably just the level of distress that it's causing for the person. Um, but anyway, I just thought that was very interesting that um, Jack Cornfield's not the only one that says that this is not a problem. And then another person is Alan Wallace. 
Um, how many of you know Alan Wallace? Okay. Um, also, a Tibetan teacher. He, he translated a lot for the Dalai Lama. Um, and he says, it is crucial, this is an email he sent me, it is crucial to distinguish between undesirable effects from proper meditation and from misguided meditation. The signs of progress cited in my book, Attention Revolution, would generally be regarded as undesirable, but it is entirely appropriate that such experiences occur as they are part of the mind settling in its natural state. So I have two copies of the Attention Revolution, which I recommend you getting. You can get them on Amazon. And his references to, he has a whole section on signs of progress, um, which were actually references to another Buddhist text in the Tibetan lineage. So now, so we were, we've been talking about Theravada Buddhism so far. Now we're on Tibetan Buddhism. So he's, in his book, he's referring to a book called The Vajra Essence by Dujum Lingpa, where he lists signs of progress. And so according to Alan Wallace, how do you know that your meditation is going well? How do you know that you're making progress? If you have terror as your sense of self dissolves, intolerable pain throughout the body, fear, paranoia, obsessions, delusions, crying, extreme emotional disturbances, turbulence, language impairment, disorientation, insomnia, nightmares. Interestingly, this, so that's from the ancient text, and now we're back to Alan in now, nowadays. He says, at times these may become so disturbing that psychological counseling or medical treatment may be necessary. So this is very interesting because, I mean, I've done lots of stints in monasteries. You've done lots of stints in monasteries. I don't remember there being a psychiatrist, like, you know, you can go to the teacher or you can go to the psychologist, you know, for your interview. Like, there's not, usually that's not the case. Um, but maybe it should be. So this is, this is actually something that Jack and I came up with together, and we're still working on it, um, in that... It's not, the, the question of progress or pathology is not a simple one. It's, there's no easy answer like, oh, this is, needs to be medicated, this is a psychological disorder, this is a meditation effect, and they're, they're separate things. I think that we're, that's, a, that's an impossible direction to go down. Um, instead, it's complicated. And so we have meditation effects that are starting to be documented. We have cognitive ones, emotional ones, definitely changes in the sense of self, and changes in the physiological experience. There seems to be some physiological reorganization going on. And then there's a number of factors. Factors of the practitioner, the practice that they're doing, the context, which I obviously think is important because it's a bigger type, um, and also the support structure around them that interact with whether these kinds of things um, turn into what we call pathology, which is basically things that are going to require um, medical, psychiatric, intervention or hospitalization. Uh, and so here are a couple things. So practitioner level, and these, and these are, a lot of these are coming from the interviews with the teachers. We ask people, what should we look for? Um, the practitioner level contributing factors, um, these are things that, the that are specific about the meditator. So obviously their life if they have a trauma history, what kind of developmental history, attachment style, parents, etc. If they have a psychiatric comorbidity, if they already have schizophrenia and they have a psychotic break, it's probably you know, a different case than another one. 
Um, their temperament, which was what I was talking about yesterday, aversive, deluded, greedy, and he has a bunch of other ways of separating out temperament. Um, their general orientation towards life. Are they very embodied? Are they very intellectual? Um, so lots of things. And, I'm, and I'm, if you have some ideas for me or scales I can use, we're still kind of perfecting this part. Um, the type of practice, um, which actual practice are they doing? With what intensity are they doing it? Are they breaking it up? Are they having discussions with their teacher? Or is it completely, are they completely alone? Um, what tradition are they in? What are they kind of getting in terms of their, what's their belief structure going in? And like I said, probably the most important one is the context and the support structure. Um, how much do they know about what can happen? What are their expectations? Are they incredibly naive? Because if they are, like, there's going to be a lot of secondary like shame and disappointment. Um, and do they have access to knowledgeable teachers or therapists? Um, so having a teacher isn't necessarily, you know, quality matters. You really have to have teachers that are that are uh, experienced. So I've given this talk all over the country um, to clinicians, to uh, scientists, to, to Dharma, to like meditation centers. So I've gotten a lot of feedback, and there's a lot of uh, common assumptions that I want to address. Um, one of them is that the frequency is incredibly rare. This is so infrequent that we don't really need to worry about it. It's just like, you know, it's, it's just very, very uncommon. Um, the second one is this only happens to people with psychiatric vulnerability. So if you can get, the, if you can get a, a screener, some kind of screener, that will rule out people with a certain kind of vulnerability, whether it's a trauma history or a history of psychosis or whatever, then we can avoid this. This, is, this can be avoided on, on retreats or in, in a study or in a clinical setting. The third one is this only happens at high doses. We don't have to worry about this in the context of therapy or MBSR or, or children in schools because they're doing so little of it that they're never going to have really any real insights. Um, and then um, the next one is that if you do all your practice correctly, it can be avoided. So these are all some version of this can be avoided. Um, this results from wrong practice or a bad teacher. And if you get a good teacher and you do your practice correctly, none of this is going to happen. So those are all some assumptions that I think need to be addressed, very, very common. Um, so I asked Jack Hornfield, um, you know, how often does this happen? And I, he gave me three, I gave him three categories. One was, how often do, and this is just his center, Spirit Rock. How often do you find someone on retreat who has a mental instability that requires immediate hospitalization off retreat? So, like, the paramedics come and the person gets taken away in an ambulance. Um, and how many times does this happen and in what types of retreats does it happen? So how long do they have to be? And so he says, he's from his center alone, which is actually one of the best in terms of support and knowledge about this, um, he says he sees that category, the top category, once every two years. So every other year, someone goes to the hospital from retreat, and that can happen on any of the retreats, 10-day, one-month, two-month, three-month. Um, I also asked him if he thought there were any people that committed suicide as a direct result of these kinds of symptoms, and he said yes. Um, 
And, you know, obviously it's very hard to tell what else is going on with people, but he said that he's probably seen um, not none, but a, a couple um, in the 30 years that he's been teaching. He, did, he said a handful. Um, and then I asked him about the third category, which is really the one that I'm focusing on, which is a clinical impairment of functioning. Again, uh, trouble working or taking care of children for more than a month. And he says that he personally works with about two to four people a year. Um, and that's just him personally, Jack Hornfield. Other people at Spirit Rock also take on other people. Um, I, can, I can update that and say that I get one to two calls per week. Um, so it's much more common than, uh, than, we, than I ever thought. It's, it's, and I'm getting them from all over the world. So I got bulk, countries that I never even heard of, Bulgaria, uh, you, you know, all through Europe, um, and also therapists and clinicians and um, psychiatrists are starting to send me case reports. I got one from um, Norway last week. So I think that the prevalence is, is not rare. Um, well, I could actually ask you. So in this room, which is not, there are not very many of you, but in this room, how many people have, I'm going to ask you if it's personally happened to you or someone that you know personally, any of the things that I've been describing, you can raise your hand. Okay. So usually I get about an 80% hand rate from people who have been for, from groups that have a high level of meditation experience. So it's always 80%, yeah. Um, so, here, so the next question is, how much practice does it take? Um, in our sample, and again, a sa the sampling is going to play a big role in the data, which is why I didn't include this in your handouts. This, when we sample more people, we're going to have different data. But these were meditation teachers that we sampled, and so a lot of them are going to be on retreat. But basically, um, most, uh, a portion of them, 68%, um, these types of things happen while on a retreat, and 32% um, not on a retreat. Um, and then in terms of retreats, it doesn't matter how long the retreat was that they were on. What matters is how many days into the retreat. Because it could have been a seven-month retreat, but if it happened on the third day, then it doesn't matter that it's a seven-month retreat. Okay, so basically um, we found that 30% of our sample had happened in daily practice. Um, more than 25 in the first 10 days of practice. Um, so basically 60% of the retreatants develop difficulties in the first two weeks. So again, if the idea is, well, you know, any, I'll send my patients on you know, short retreats and that those will be safe, I think that it, it doesn't have to be a long retreat. And I've definitely seen people who went on their first meditation retreat um, like with like a weekend retreat where it's like you show up on Friday night and then you do a practice on Friday and Saturday, just that, and they never meditated before, just that um, precipitated an episode where they ended up getting hospitalized. Um, and this person had no psych history, no um, family history of any kind of, of issues. So, um, yeah. I have a new slide. No one's ever seen this slide before. Um, which is that we took our code book from the study, because everybody's asking, like, you know, MBSR, MBCT, these eight-week clinical programs, like, aren't those, like, a completely different thing than what we're talking about here? Like, these are not Buddhist retreats. You know, these are different. And 
again, we don't need to worry about it because this is a different thing. It's stress reduction. It's not Buddhism. Da 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 da. So, and I, I, I haven't been able to answer that question because we don't know. So I took my code book, so all the symptoms that I've been describing, and I actually am running a clinical trial right now um, looking at MBCT versus focused attention only versus open monitoring only. And I'm, it's in the middle, so I've only run one group through the three-month follow-up so far, just the MBCT group. Um, but I went through the code book. And what was interesting is I asked people very generically first, I said, have you ever had, did you have any unexpected or like challenging side effects of meditation? No. Um, and then I went through each cluster. Did you have any unexpected or challenging emotional experiences? No. Oh, did you have any de-repression of traumatic memories? Oh, oh yeah, yeah I did. Oh yeah, I spent a whole day crying the whole day. Uh, so you have to be very specific in how you ask the questions or people are going to say no. So that's the first thing is like, why are we not hearing about this in clinical trials? Because people aren't asking the right questions. And it's not even okay to say like, like these are such weird symptoms, especially like the changes in sense of self or like disembodiment that people aren't going to, they don't even know how to describe them really. So we describe them based on other people's descriptions and we read them back the descriptions. Um, and I would say generally that it was actually fairly low in MBCT. But this is basically what we found. The, the gray area are people that didn't, didn't endorse a single symptom on our list. Um, and then basically 80% of the rest of the people, 85%, um, had at least one symptom um, on the list that we read them. So, um, and, and the most common one was de-repression of traumatic memories. So that was very, very common um, just in the eight weeks. And um, the next one was perceptual or sens perceptual sensitivity or stimulus overload. That was the most common one. The next one was an increase in negative emotions, um, which was also the way it was described was a, was a deterioration, a feeling of that I was getting worse. I was like starting to fall apart. So sometimes people can hold negative emotions where it feels very cathartic and there's like a strong negative emotion, but they're like, this is good, this is good that I'm feeling this. Um, and this was, people actually felt like they were falling apart. Um, and then we had two people who described um, dis feelings of disembodiment being outside their body um, or loss of sense of self. And these were, these were very brief and totally mild and manageable. Um, I wouldn't say I'm worried about any of these people, but I, my point here is to demonstrate that what we're seeing in much more advanced meditators or people that have a lot more practice um, is, is happening at a milder degree on a, on a sort of milder continuum even in the first eight weeks. I don't think any of this is that surprising. You've probably seen a lot of this in your own practice, in your own practice or in your meditation practice or clinical practice. Okay, what about comorbidity, particularly psychotrauma history? Um, so this sample, we didn't, we, we excluded people that had any serious mental illness. Um, so there was no one in the sample that had previously had any kind of psychosis, mania, depersonalization, or any kind of hospitalizations. Um, there were people, the only kinds of diagnoses that were in the current sample were depression, anxiety, and ADHD, which is good luck finding a sample that doesn't have a little bit of that. Um, but it was, even that was less than 
So half the sample were like completely squeaky clean, no trauma history. They described their childhood as warm and supportive. I'm like, who are these people? Um, and you know, the and like no no sort of adverse events in their life, um, no and no psych histories. And the adverse events that people described were um, kind of the, the typical ones. Um, Trauma, abuse, neglect, death or illness of a loved one, um, parent or sibling, about 50% of the people uh, described that. And again, I said about half of people had no identifiable trauma or psych history. So um, the, the point, the, the take-home message from this is that I really don't think there's going to be a screener that's going to be able to identify who this will happen to and who it won't. In terms of, of occurrence, which is different than severity, in terms of occurrence, I think that these types of experiences can happen to anyone. And there's a lot of support that they actually should happen to everyone if they are indeed part of a sort of contemplative trajectory. However, comorbidity, psych history, trauma history is not irrelevant either. So there's a difference between occurrence whether it's going to happen or not, and severity. So this is the role of comorbidity. This is, this is not in your handouts because, it, again, these numbers change as we keep adding people. Um, but there's a couple interesting things about this table. So here we have people with no psych history or trauma history. And then on the right, no, sorry, yeah. So the people in the middle column are basically like the squeaky clean people, like the impossibly healthy people. And then the people on the right are... You know, more of what we're seeing in our clinics, some, some trauma, some, some mild depression and anxiety. Um, so the first thing I want to mention is this one here, which is the impairment duration. Um, and you notice that how long they were sort of out of commission is way longer in the people with a, a psych history or a trauma history. So if you have a somewhat difficult or um, complicated life, then the interaction with sort of meditation effects is going to be more difficult for you and it's gonna last longer. Um, 1.5 years is still not a small amount of time for people that were squeaky clean, um, but it's much shorter than um, people with a trauma history. So that's the first thing I wanted to point out. The second thing I wanted to point out was the days to onset. So how many days of meditation can you basically tolerate before the experiences um, caused a lot of distress and disorientation. And people with no trauma history made it almost two months, um, whereas it was a much shorter amount of time um, for the people with a trauma or psych history. Where, who is like, who's talking? Oh. Yeah, days on retreat, yep. But Sorry. not successive. Yeah, successive. Um, and then another interesting thing happened, and again, this is this is why I'm sort of like a little hesitant to like tell everyone this data because it's not conclusive at all. But I just want to give you some sort of ideas that I have. Is notice notice the age of onset also, um, which is in this group, in the squeaky clean group, the age of onset was 25, and in the history, in the psych history, trauma history group. The, um, the age of onset was almost 40. 
There's something very different going on. So here's my hypothesis. We basically have two different groups going on here. One group is a group of 18 to 30 year old males, mostly males, who discover meditation and they get really into it. And they go to, they either like start doing like tons of retreats or meditating on their days off or like really, they get really, really into it. You're probably one of those. Um, and they, a lot of times they go to Asia and they stay ordained and they do some intensive retreats with um, you know, Burmese masters. Um, and they start to get into very interesting territory. They're, and they're meditating like between 10 and 20 hours a day. So they get into interesting territory through that. So that's one group. So their gender is also on here. Because the other group, the trauma history group, uh, tend to be female and middle-aged. And they also tend to have had a lot more meditation time before they get into this territory. Um, and it's interesting, and it makes, I mean, it makes sense to me that a lot of these uh, experiences are, in fact, insight experiences or experiences that are actually um, part of the contemplative um, uh, progress trajectory because, um, because it's going to take you a lot longer to get into insight territory if you're only meditating one hour a day and you have no idea that insight's even part of the practice or part of the deal. So if you're meditating, you went to MBSR, you're meditating an hour a day, you go on one or two retreats a year, very common sort of American trajectory. Um, it's going to take you a while to get into an insight territory. But um, people who have been meditating almost 10 years or eight years, that's 10,000 hours, regardless of when, um, of why you started, 10,000 hours of following your breath, you're going to start to see some differences in your experiences of reality. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, uh, the, the Center for Mindfulness, so MBSR, was started in 1979. So if you were one of the first people that got into that, uh, into MBSR, and you've been doing your homework consistently all this time, you've been doing a meditate, you've been doing an hour a day, every day, for the last 30 years, um, and you've been doing maybe one or two retreats a year, which is what is recommended by MBSR, you just hit 10,000 hours recently. So we're going to see a lot of like baby boomers who are, who are part of that generation. Now that if people are doing their MBSR homework, you're going to start to see people actually getting into inside territory, which means that we got to know what we're doing. So a lot of speculation about that. Um, but I do think that the... I don't think that the, the trauma history, psych history category is actually that interesting because I think that that's probably more representative of, um, I don't know, like the average person, the average meditator. I find the other category really interesting. Like what's going on with these incredibly healthy, squeaky clean young guys? Um, and this is where I think there is a variable that needs to be created. And we've been thinking very carefully about creating a variable called zealotry. And that the zealotry scale, I think, will actually uh, predict a lot. Because I think people are, like, charging full speed ahead. And to some extent, um, and I was, I'm definitely, a, I was on in this category, and I think you were too, that a lot of these insights um, can unfold in a very natural way 
in a very gradual way. And that you slowly just become like kind of less concerned about yourself in a way that's very gradual. But you can also do this very quickly where the, your insight is actually outpacing your psychological development. And it's, it, the, the, it can be very rapid and very destabilizing. So there's a quote. So Ruth Dennison was one of the people that I interviewed. She's a um, spirit rock teacher. And she was like, you're welcome to use my name. I went totally you know, badass crazy, and I don't care if you tell people. Um, so, and she also wrote, this is actually from her book, so um, she doesn't care about her name being used. Uh, and she said, there was a time in my life when I experienced extreme states of par- terror and pain. My difficulties had arisen from wrong practice. I had been too eager beaver. I was concentrating too harshly, pushing it too hard in a determined way. So, and more kind of support for this idea that um, this zealotry idea is, you know, we can, some, at least something to watch. So let's go back to these assumptions. Assumptions revisited. You should have, this should be on your slides now. Uh, frequency, does it only happen, oh, sorry, does it, is it very infrequent? I don't think so, given how many calls I get. Um, the dose is important, but it's not sufficient. I, I do think we're going to see m- much more of this at higher doses, but I don't think that that keeping it at a lower dose is in any way going to be sort of prophylactic. And I, I also don't know why you would want to be prophylactic. Um, type of practice. Um, the practices that we're teaching to our clients, just following your breath or noticing whatever's arising in your experience, those are pl- you don't need any weird kundalini or like, you know, heat generating or anything, any kind of exotic practice, that's a whole other story. Not needed, though. Just basically what we're calling mindfulness, following your breath, noticing what's arising, that's enough um, to generate these kinds of experiences. Um, The intensity and level of effort, again, the zealotry idea seems to be important. Um, Comorbidity may exacerbate the duration but it's not sufficient for the occurrence. So this can happen to anyone, but it might be more complicated and more difficult for people with uh, trauma or psych history. And the duration of symptoms um, or the the duration of distress and impairment is really dependent on a supportive context. I have had talked to people and just normalizing this experience, just giving them a copy of the progress of insight, just telling them that this happens to a lot of people and it might actually be part of the path that alone is incredibly transformative for a lot of people, and that's all they need. Um, and other people just want to have, just being able to be in touch with teachers who just tell their own story, like, oh, yeah, this happened to me, and, like, this is how I dealt with it, and I had this experience and that experience. Just hearing that, like, kind of readjusting your expectations of what the process looks like uh, is, is a lot of what sort of normalizing the experience is a lot of what needs to happen. Um, and there's been a lot of um, controversy about front-loading people with theory. And so in the, in the sort of IMS uh, Western Vipassana movement and also in MBSR, there was a lot of discussion about this. Like, how much should we tell people about what this practice actually involves? Now, John Kabat-Zinn, it's very, again, he's a very important figure to understand how we got to where we are right now, which is like in some ways really clueless. 
about what this stuff involves. John Kabat-Zinn was trained in Zen. Zen, and, and I'm sure Michael has a lot to say about this, but Zen in some ways is a reaction to the earlier schools of, of, of Buddhism, which were all about theory, like training and learning the, you know, what was, what was enlightenment and what was it going to look like. And, and a lot of people were just like learning all that in an intellectual way and not really embodying the practice and knowing it from the, their own experience. They were like too filled with theory. And it was, like, contaminating their experience. And so Zen was like, okay, we're just going to sit down and stare at the wall. Like, no instructions. We're not going to, like, give them anything because it's innately already there. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but uh, you get the idea. So that's, that's where, that's where Kabat-Zinn came from. So, you know, he sits down. That's what you do. He's, and when you take the instructor training, it's like you're not giving them any theory. You trust that they can actually come up with um, a lot of these insights on their own which they can to an extent until they start getting into this stuff. Similarly, um, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, um, all the people in that sort of area also decided deliberately not to teach maps, not to talk about maps um, for a couple different reasons. One was that Americans are really competitive and they were afraid that people would be like, well, I'm at stage four. What are you at? Oh, you're only at stage two? Well, you know, like all this ridiculousness. Um, and also that maps basically, again, people can start getting so interested in the maps and where they are and like the hierarchy of being, you know, having progress that they, that they aren't focusing on the present moment, which is really the point. Um, and that they start to make up they start to, to, to basically, it's a script that they start to, like, oh, I'm noticing how everything's rising and passing away. And they're really, like, nowhere near that stage. So the teachers were like, let's just not tell anyone anything. Um, and then when they actually say stuff like that, we can actually believe them. So there was a very deliberate move to not have maps. And it's, and it's totally, I totally understand that it's completely justified. And it has a very um, good reason behind it. But I also think that there's, we're at a point now where it's the lack of maps and a lack of theoretical front-loading preparation is actually having, is causing problems. And I hope that what I've shown you so far is convincing you of that. So along those lines, um, I got to give this presentation to the Dalai Lama. Uh, and this picture is very telling. <laughs> So this is me, this is Tupton Jimpa, um, His Holiness, my friend Dave Vago, who's a Harvard researcher, and then Richie Davidson. Um, Richie looks like he's about to jump out of his chair in, in, in case I say something. And obviously His Holiness was very interested in what I had to say. Um, and basically, and you can watch this on the video, but he basically, um, he listened to all these the stories that I told him and he told me a story in response. And he said, um, I was invited to, a, um, to bless a monastery in South India. And they were very excited to, to have me. There was like a parade and there were elephants. And, you know, the Dalai Lama was going to come bless this new, this new monastery. It was a new, yeah, new monastery. And they brought him in and they said, look at our giant meditation hall. It holds a thousand monks. It's the largest meditation hall in all of India. And it's like wonderful, and, and the Dalai Lama looked around and he said, "Where's your library?" 
And they're like, no, 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 no. Look at our meditation hall. It's the largest meditation hall in all of India. It's a thousand monks. No, no, no. And he's like, well, where's your library? And they're like, oh, no, we don't have a library. We have the largest one, you know, all that. And he said, yeah, I'm not blessing it. So he went and turned around and went home. And so the point of his story was you can't just practice meditation. Like, you have to have some idea of what you're doing. You have to have theory. Um, and in many traditions, like in the Tibetan tradition, you're not even allowed to start meditating until you've, been, you've passed your exams on the text, textual study. Um, for, for like ten, almost a decade of study before you're even allowed to sit down and meditate. Um, so the, the, the idea that you can just sit down and everything will be revealed to you by following your breath, I think is a little naive. And, and based on what the people that are coming to me, completely freaked out by actually really expected, traditionally recognized uh, experiences, I think that's probably true. Um, so I think that there's a lot of confusion um, about what the goals of meditation are. I mean, I think we all use them. We've been taught that they're for certain things, um, and we have very, very vague code words. Um, happiness, end of suffering, flour- flourishing is one of the new ones, um, because they're code words for enlightenment. Um, if you, there's a lot of code words in the, the scientific literature. Like Shauna Shapiro, she, she published a, an article in American Psychologist with Alan Wallace, where the, the key word that they used was re-perceiving. And if you don't think that, that she's talking about re-perceiving reality in a way that doesn't include selves and things, that's what she's talking about. But it was, it was, it was slipped under the, the radar, and like American psychologists were like, oh, we're re-perceiving for human flourishing, and we think it's like this normal thing in our normal repertoire, but it's actually like way more profound than that. So I encourage you to look for these kinds of things. Cognitive diffusion also is just the beginning of a much bigger transformation. So I think that, again, if you're confused, you're not alone. I think everybody's confused. So what should we do? Um, next steps. And again, I want to highlight that like, I'm not the first person to have come up with this. There's been many past attempts. And in fact, the, the DSM has actually, this is actually appearing in the DSM already in at least three places. So if you go into the culture-bound syndromes, Qigong psychotic reactions already in there. It's a contemplative practice, a movement-based practice. Um, but there's so many people in China that if you have 40 million people doing Qigong, that just, just the numbers alone are going to start to produce a certain category of, of reactions. And then they document it in medical books. So it's, it's just a numbers game that, that has just been better documented in Chinese medical books, which is also in ours. Like I already mentioned, depersonalization disorder, it's already in there saying that, wait a second, this happens to meditators in an unproblematic way. Um, And then uh, David Lukoff, I think his name's David, um, also tried to get this into the DSM, and there were a lot of meetings that went back and forth. And for the DSM-IV, it only made it into the section on religious and spiritual problems. And if you work with that particular dimension, it's a V-code, so it means it's not actually a disorder, but it warrants clinical attention. Um, it's mixed in with things like, my faith doesn't support my sexual orientation, 
which is a really, really important thing to struggle with like and work with, but it's really different than what we're talking about. So there's been more efforts um, to bring this into DSM-5. Um, David Lukoff is the guy who been, has been having these meetings. There's been specific meetings, but uh, I just actually ordered my DSM-5, so I don't actually know if it's in there, but I kind of doubt it. Um, but I know that the group... Um, there is a really big emphasis in the DSM-5 on, cu on cultural uh, psychiatry and having that, that different cultures and subcultures define mental illness and the expression of certain kinds of um, symptoms differently. And that, so I think that's actually a promising direction to look into. Um, there is also, these are some other efforts. Um, there... Stan Groff actually had something called the Spiritual Emergency Network. He wrote a number of books. One was called Spiritual Emergency, which encompasses a lot of these experiences, again, in a very spiritual framework that is very unpalatable to a lot of scientists. Um, it's now defunct. Um, the there's an Institute for Spirituality and Psychotherapy, which is coming out of the uh, Institute for Noetic Sciences. And they have kind of like a, maybe a second version of uh, the, in, the Spiritual Emergency Network. And what the Spiritual Emergency Network didn't do well is that they didn't vet their therapists very well. And so people who basically self-proclaim uh, themselves as being spiritually competent um, were kind of like listed as the people to refer people to if they were having these kinds of issues. And there is actually a listserv that's still going around, which I'm on, and I was looking at it, and um, somebody was talking about a client who was having some problems, and the one of the therapists wrote back and said, oh, yes, I checked with my guides about that, and, like, this is what they said. And so I think, again, that might be fine for some people, but in terms of APA and scientific kind of world that's not going to, consulting your spiritual guides is not going to be, it's not going to cut it. So the, this institute, it has a much, uh, this institute, the second one, it's led by um, Cassandra Beaton. Um, she um, is vetting therapists and making sure that one, they're very, very uh, experienced in meditation themselves. They're very advanced practitioners. Um, and there are clinicians that really understand this process. So we're working closely with them to see if we can uh, sort of match up clinicians with um, patients that I'm getting, because I'm getting way too many that I can deal with. Um, this, the meditation teacher trainings are also uh, slowly starting to integrate a lot, of, um, a lot better training, and this is ongoing, and they're fairly open to feedback. And so Jack Cornfield's actually in charge of the Spirit Rock Instructor Training for meditation teachers, and it's four years long, and it requires um, it requires teachers to at least go through uh, trauma training because not everybody is a is a clinician, but to at least have that under their belt so they can understand the complications that go with that. And Richard Miller, who's another um, meditation teacher in the Bay Area, also has a five-year training, which incorporates a lot of what we're doing. But, so those are some of the efforts. And I talked about David Lukoff. Um, he has a spiritual competency like online quiz you can take. Um, here's the quiz. Intensive meditation practices can lead to A, feelings of depersonalization, B, anxiety, C, disorientation, D, all of the above. And the answer is 
D. Great. Um, and then uh, the Buddhist Teachers Council, which was held at the Garrison Institute in 2011, um, they also discussed this topic with some of the data that I have. So this is all very early on, and we're starting, starting to um, work with different people. Uh, I have to say that every single one of these, the top ones, all are happening in San Francisco. So again, that's where transpersonal psychology was kind of born and died. And there's, there, it's, it's sort of a bubble where everybody's totally okay with talking about this, but it hasn't really gotten beyond that, which is what I'm trying to do. Um, so this is the first time it's been discussed in the East Coast, and I'm also working closely with the retreat support at IMS to uh, better support yogis that are on retreat. Um, and I'll skip this. This is just some of the people that I'm working with. Uh, and so here are some recommendations. I have recommendations for clinicians, meditation teachers, educators, um, and meditators. So I think we need to be informed. I think we need to do our homework. It's not just okay to just, I don't think MBSR training, instructor training is enough. I think we need to know more. We need to know the knowledges of different practices and what they do, what they're intended to do. We need to know the full range of meditation experiences. Um, and we need to interface more with contemplative scholars and texts. Like, I, I think that if you're going to teach mindfulness, that you need to have some training in Buddhist theory. Um, in educational systems, and this is um, in schools, which is very, very popular, I really think that parents need to, have, need to be really informed. I think everyone needs to be informed. Um, I recently opened a Zoloft package, and I took out this little piece of paper that looked like this, and then I opened it, and it was like, it was like six feet high, and it was all the like possible adverse effects of Zoloft, and I was like, wow. So I mean, we don't have anything like that. There's nothing remotely related um, that I just think people should just. A lot of people are very angry. Like if I had known, like you know, informed consent, meaning that people should know what they're getting into before they start. What? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what this is going to look like, but something along those lines where it's a little bit less, the way it's being presented right now is like, it's just like a benzodiazepine that you're just going to take more and more and more of and like everything's going to get better. Um, uh, oh yeah, I'm sure there are, yes. Um, let me just finish and then we can discuss. I just have a couple more slides. Um, what about meditation teachers and retreats? Um, transparency, more information about the full range of experiences that are possible. Um, the issue of maps and whether to give them out early, again, is still, I think, something we, I don't think it's a good idea, honestly, to give people too much idea, but I think it's good to have them in your, in your toolbox when they arise. Um, and the support structures, we really need to do, especially on meditation retreats, we need to have better support structures. Right now, like at IMS, for example, there's 90 people on a retreat. They get a, they get a group interview every couple days, so you never actually get a lot, like a, a sustained amount of time with the teacher. And there's three teachers, usually one main teacher and two support staff. So that's just a numbers game that's, a, that's not, that ratio is not sufficient. Um, other teachers that we found that have had way less problems with people on retreat meet with their teachers every, meet, meet with their students every day and keep, keep the ratio at least down below 30. Um, 
And I would say probably closer to like 10 or 12 would be depending on which kind of practice you're doing. Probably most important is, is the retreat follow-up. A lot of people are actually okay on retreat because they're, they don't have any rec- responsibilities. It's like you just wander, you know, if you're like, you have no sense of self, no sense of your body, like you can still make it to dinner. Or it actually isn't usually dinner, but you can make it to lunch and, you know, like you kind of wander off and like it's, you don't have to worry about like driving or like interacting with people. So a lot of people are, are actually fine on retreat. Um, these symptoms are actually not problems. They're, they're like, they're okay and they're working through them. But when they get in their car or when they get out of retreat, that's when it gets more difficult for them. They're all the sensory input is suddenly like way too much to manage. And so I think there needs to be a follow-up period after retreats where, where the, you're not just like, bye. And like everyone's driving off. Like you're, you're actually, um, have, an actual scheduled time where everybody checks back in with the teacher. Um, and, and Spirit Rock is starting to do that. And I have to, I have to say one person in my sample driving away from a retreat got in, hit seven cars on her way home um, because her sense of her body was so expanded. And that, that starts to, that extends to your, your car. So she wasn't really, her sense of space was very off and she got in a lot of accidents. Okay, clinicians. Um, what factors should be considered when prescribing meditation-based therapies or treatments to distressed individuals? Um, you know, you should know their psychotrauma history. You should understand the dosage. More is not always better. The practice type, which uh, Michael's going to talk a lot about, um, could be knowing how to match specific types of practice to specific types of people. Um, and the differential diagnosis, again, I, I actually think this is kind of a dead end. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure it out, and I think it's, it's better to just have a skillful means of approaching people rather than trying to figure out which category they fit in. Um, and I'm, I'm going to just kind of... Um, I think the other two, it's in your handouts. I don't need to go over it. And um, this is our program... I actually run actually an education program at Brown um, called the Contemplative Studies Initiative, and we're really trying to make this a template for success. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not anti-meditation. I'm not trying to dissuade people from doing it. I just think that it's actually much more powerful than people are. They're underestimating its power, and I really think that we need to be more informed and more prepared for a massive pretty profound transformation in the people that do it. So um, we have a program at Brown. People, you know, I told you about it. We did some research on them. The kids meditate three times a week. And we have a lot of kids that actually become monks after their program. Um, and then they, they're celibate and they don't do drugs and they're, like, very different from average college students. And so we had to create a house um, for them to live in, um, which is called Cheetah House. And Cheetah House is now actually a residential facility for people who are having difficulties coming off retreats and need some time to reintegrate their uh, their insights and their their experiences. And also, a lot of times they work on this this study and help uh, collect data and things like that so they can understand this phenomenon better. But we also have uh, very close monitoring. This is a monitoring... Uh, of all the people that we teach. And we have a lot of teachers. This is Shinzen Young, Fleet Mall, Temple Smith, me and another clinician. Um, 
that can work with more psychiatric complications. So that the that we um, and we also train all of our students both in the practices where they came from, but very much in the traditions and the path structures, so that they're actually much more prepared. So it's it's a working template, but we think that. Um, maybe it's a, a better than what we have moving forward. So I realize that I just talked for like, I don't know how long, but a really long time. Um, but that's my whole presentation. So thank you for listening.